0: I have two questions for you. Are you a self-learner? Then how do you stay up to date? What should you focus on if you're a beginner or if you're more advanced? Here is my second question. Are you working in biomedicine? And if you do, are you using Bayesian tools? Then how do you get your co-workers more used to posterior distributions than p-values? In other words, how do you change behaviors in a large organization? In this episode, Eric Ma will answer all these questions and even tell us his favorite modeling techniques, which problems he encountered with these models and how he solved them. He'll also share with us the software engineering workflow he uses at Novartis to share his work with colleagues. Eric is a data scientist at the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, where he focuses on Bayesian statistical methods to make medicines for patients. Eric is also a prolific open source developer He led the development of PyJanitor, an API for cleaning data in Python, and NXVs, a visualization package for NetworkX. He also contributes to PyMC3, Matplotlib, and Bokeh. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, Episode 5, recorded October 21, 2019. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andora, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? Is someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability Because every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching Eric Ma, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics Thanks, Alex. Thank you for hosting me here at the Novartis facility uh, for research in Boston. It's really nice. The coffee is really good. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very alert for this uh, interview. So let's uh, maybe start by your background. What compelled you to become a researcher in biomedicine?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a personal story behind it. My dad passed away from lymphoma when I was 16. And so that left the desire, I think, to do research in biomedicine. So all throughout undergrad, I thought I was going to do like cancer research, immunology research. I participated in like microbiology research as well, explored a little bit of synthetic biology, originally came to grad school to do synthetic biology. Then I switched advisors. It's a long story. Then ended up doing influenza research. It wasn't at the bench. I just completely gave up at the bench as well, realizing that I don't have the patience for it (laughs) and switched to doing computational research during grad school. So I ended up doing a thesis in the computational, ecological, evolutionary, some story about flu, um, (laughs) which got published. And it was a one big giant Python hack. And after grad school, I realized I like doing computational science. I also wanted to continue doing science because that, you know, data science back in 2017, marketing was hot, advertising was hot, but I just couldn't see myself doing that. Yeah. So, uh, restricted the job hunt to places where I could bring the science back to data science. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got into it.
0: So, actually, yeah, you were like in biomedicine topics since uh, undergrad. Yeah, since undergrad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That shows kind of a commitment to the topic.
1: And... I guess, yeah. It's been a long journey, but uh, I think it's been fun because the more I learn about biology, the more complex it is, right? It's like grad school. The more you know, yeah. the more you know you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I completely know your the feeling. <laughs> That's right. And then, you know, the use of computation is kind of fun because there are some superpowers you get when you know how to compute. You, if you write a for loop, you have one superpower already. And then, you know, lots of biological tasks They're just like for loops. So yeah. (laughs) I'm not an expert at all
0: in biomedicine, but from the outside, that Mm -hmm. looks really fascinating and amazing what you guys are working on. And actually, we're going to come back to that uh, Uh later. But you talked about uh, Python already. So I'm interested in how you
1: first got introduced to Python. Do you remember? Yeah, very concretely. Back then, I was still at the bench and I wanted to do some automation of stuff. And so I wanted to automate PCR primer design. I won't go into what that is, but it's something you can compute. A friend of mine recommended I go to the Boston Python user group. So I went to Boston Python user group and just like embedded myself there for a month or two. And then I ended up having to switch advisors. So then I had to come up with a new thesis topic. Two years in at the Switch Advisors, so I was looking at a flu data set that I found online and thought, hey, there'd be something interesting inside there. So I brought it to the Boston Python user group. That night, we have this thing called Project Night. In Project Night, one thing you can do is you can actually raise your hand and tell the entire group what you're doing, and if someone else takes an interest, they can come in sit with you, and talk with you about that project. So I said, this is what I'm trying to do. And some guy who used to be an ex-Broad Institute software engineer, he walks over and he says, you know what? I think there's some stuff that could be really cool. You should do blah, 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 blah. And it took me a few months to realize that he was telling a two-month-old Python programmer to do machine learning in Python. (laughs) That was my first taste of... Programming in Python. And, you know, he gave me some code. My Python skills were bad back then. It took me about a week to figure out what to do with it, whatever he was telling me to do. But once I made my first plot of data in Python, I got hooked. That was it. It never stopped since then. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I understand. I think uh, it was the same thing for me, too. <laughs> yeah. Like. yeah. Actually, it was the discovery that you can automate something yeah. that takes time. That yeah. the computer does a lot better than you, yeah. and a lot quicker. Yeah, and you're like, wow. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm free. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, free from drudgery. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And what about Bayesian methods? Do you remember when you first got introduced to them?
1: Yeah. I got first introduced to Bayesian methods the hard way. So there's in phylogeny, there's this thing called Bayesian phylogeny Mm. where we don't learn a single tree, but we learn a probability distribution over trees. Now, if you said those words to me back in 2015, when I first encountered it, I would be like... Holy smokes, what is this guy talking about? First off, what is probability? Second off, what is a tree? And thirdly, what do you mean by a probability distribution (laughs) over trees? Now I know how to model it, but back then I didn't, right? So Bayesian phylogeny was introduced to our research group by a postdoc. Nicola was her name. She introduced the method and then invited a professor from Texas to come up and give us sort of a masterclass on Bayesian phylogeny. And it was during that time that I just sort of like prior to him coming, I sat down with a few books on phylogeny and tried to figure out what in the world do we mean by Bayesian phylogeny? And that led me down this rabbit hole of probability, trees, maximum likelihood, parsimony, methods for constructing phylogenies. And then when he came... I was able to like sit down one afternoon with him and sort of like go into the exact computations that go in when we're computing a maximum likelihood tree. And therefore, then what else we need to do to generalize this to become Bayesian. And that's when I saw, wow, this is kind of fun. Then from the hard stuff, I went back to the easy stuff and read Alan Downey's Think Bayes, (laughs) right? And, And from the basics learned it, built it up from scratch. And it took me a few years, actually. Apart from one frequentist stats class in undergrad and one frequentist stats class in grad school, I've never taken any other classes in formal probability or whatever. So a lot of this intuition, I've had to rely on reading Alan's books to gain that intuition. And then also using Python as the learning hack for learning Bayesian stats. Actually, I use Python to learn a whole bunch of topics beyond just Bayesian stats alone. That was actually how I got into it. Later, as time progressed, what I ended up doing was realizing that, okay, I need to program and make something to understand it. So then I started making simple Bayesian model that led me to PyMC3. I started then rewriting those models in PyMC3 from brute force Bayesian methods to pymc Once I got the hang of simple models in PyMC, I tried to build more complex models in PyMC, and they never got used in my day-to-day research work, but I was just having fun (laughs) with that stuff that was pretty cool. And that's basically how I picked up some form of intuition with Bayesian stat. No expert, by the way, like still learning. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah. I like from what
0: you're saying, the fact that it takes time to build this knowledge, and it takes even more time for this knowledge to become a kind of intuition. And that even working on models that you don't use every day in your work, well, maybe it can be useful. And actually, I think it is useful yeah. too. And yeah, you've got this repo that's really interesting, your uh, Bayesian cookbooks models. I loved it when I I found it. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, that's very interesting because it's like a potpourri, you know, of uh, (laughs) all models you can think about. And well, just, okay, we've got this problem. We could do it like that, like a classic method. And how would we do that with Python with PyMC, and most importantly, with Bayesian methods. Right, it's uh, right. like this intellectual uh, curiosity that's an important element from your uh, journey. So yeah, I guess that you said that you didn't have a proper training in Bayesian methods. I'm guessing that's the case for most people yeah. <laughs> that are listening to us and, and mm-hmm. using Bayesian methods mostly because they are not the default at university. And so, yeah, I was wondering, because you use uh, these methods every day, right? Uh And I was wondering, since they are not the default, it is usually longer, you know, to change behaviors in larger organizations, like uh, the one you're uh, working in, or even another. So what's the Actual percentage, or I don't know, you know, just a rough of the idea of the time you use Bayesian models in mm-hmm. your work here at Novartis, And maybe also how many of you co-workers do you have like a, a lot of work of education to do around these techniques?
1: Yeah, okay. So let's start with the percentage of time. Every math equation I write down, I try to make sure I put priors on my parameters. So it's pretty high percentage. If you want a maximum likelihood estimator for the fraction of time, then that is about 75 to 80% of my time. I will sneak in a Bayesian interpretation of some model that we have. For the education piece, you're right, it takes a lot of time. The number of colleagues who also partake in like Bayesian modeling is actually quite low. I think we, at least in the research division, have not yet been exposed or have not thought deeply enough about how we harness the uncertainty that we quantify. That is the most important thing that Bayesian methods give you, the uncertainty. And I think there's not enough people just thinking about where does uncertainty come into play. So there are some projects that I'm working on right now in which the presentation of uncertainty to the end user is extremely important. And I think those are the places where I think I can start contributing by not only doing the regular modeling work, but also by trying to introduce, okay, here's a principled fashion in which we can model uncertainty. There's then a principled fashion in which we can use the uncertainty in our predictions. That's, I think, something that I can bring to the table in the projects that I have at hand and try to think on behalf of those people who don't have the time to think. And the home team that I'm on, that's our mission anyways. So we're, we're there to push the boundaries a little bit and do that. So, yeah, like you said, there's a strong education piece that has to happen.
0: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Also, yeah, yeah, the kind of use case you yeah. gave uh, for Bayesian methods reminds me of exactly what uh, Colin Carroll and Chris Fonsbeck that I had on the podcast before. These episodes have not aired yet, but uh, mm-hmm. they will have when yours is going to hit people's feet. And yeah, actually, they were saying that the best use case for Bayesian methods is exactly that when you care about uncertainty and when I estimate it in a principled way and scientific way. But actually what I wonder is, do you often have to convince people Mm. that
1: they should care about uncertainty? Rarely have I had to convince someone that uncertainty is is important. It's just been more lack of just thinking about it. I think that's really all. I mean, the people who do think about uncertainty, you don't find them in the research department typically because, you know, we're doing high throughput screening. Who really cares about uncertainty there? Actually, there is a place for uncertainty there, but our traditional training, like you said, doesn't make room for that. It's just not in our headspace. Those who do think about uncertainty, they're actually in the development department. And there is where I've seen from talking with colleagues, a lot of geekery around talking about Bayesian methods and like hierarchical models, especially. Oh ah, yeah, they are the best. <laughs> uh, special sauce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can you talk
0: about uh, what you do here? Uh, what are the general goals of uh, what you're doing here at
1: Novartis? Maybe the first thing that I should disambiguate is that there's no one data science team at Novartis. I'm in the research division of Novartis, and there are at least 20 data science teams ranging in size from two people to like 40. So there's a large Shannon diversity index for the number of people that are inside each team. The team that I'm on is part of the IT department. Thankfully, I don't have to go around fixing computers. I fix scientific problems. (laughs) The team that I'm on, we're basically internal consultants for the rest of the research teams here. So in terms of the projects that I've been working on this year, I've been captured by the chemistry department. So now work very closely with our computer-aided drug discovery group, as well as in a protein engineering platform that we're trying to build out. So on the protein engineering platform, I can't go too deep, but I can say that like, basically I'm helping out to build out the infrastructure for ingesting data as well as also working out the machine learning workflow to recommend what mutant versions of a protein we should order and one thing that is very interesting for me in that particular space is the modeling of uncertainty and the use of uncertainty in a bayesian optimization sort of framework because that's exactly what we're trying to do except we're not the black box function that we're trying to optimize It's not calculatable. We have to experimentally measure it. So in that particular case then, every decision we make costs real money, like in the order of tens of thousands of dollars per experiment. So we have a lot on our shoulders. Yeah. So that's one project that I'm working on. Protein engineering, Bayesian methods, I'm trying to introduce it there. And the other project that has occupied about half of my time, it's a machine learning based project where we're trying to build automated model building systems so that we can take the drudgery out of computational chemists. So usually what happens is most drug discovery departments, you'll have computational chemist who is in support of a project team. They're building machine learning models day and night, like all left Mm. and right. Their main job is to build a machine learning model to predict assay result from molecular structure. There's a lot of drudgery. And if we structure things correctly, we can just automate a lot of that, right? We're not going to take away their jobs because the goal of automation is to take away the boring parts and leave the really tough problems to them. So that's one of the other places where I'm doing that. And now there we run into this problem of like, okay, I fit a few bunch of models to the same data set. Now, how do I present that to the end user? That's one question. Secondly, if we run into this really interesting question, if three models or four models predict the same thing. For a new molecule same order of magnitude result is that correct or all three models are wrong in the exact same way yeah (laughs) so uh, and if three models give fundamentally different results what kind of uncertainty is that those are the interesting questions that show up so in both projects i've had to play the role of both data scientist and software engineer and web developer and sometimes database guy and It's been full stack, but then that's where the fun is. Then again, of course, it exposes the limitations in my own knowledge, right? I know now how hard it is to manage a database. (laughs) Oh gosh, that's why we have database admins. So yeah, that's the flavor of the two projects that currently occupy my time. Other projects that my teammates have been involved in are like digital pathology. This is well-known in the news. They have been involved in computational biology, more so-called traditional computational biology research. There are some colleagues who are combining computational biology with deep learning methods. There are colleagues who are working on text mining problems, you know, in the literature and the likes. And the best description that I've seen about our team has been a kick-ass group of outliers. <laughs> I like the outlier portion more than I like the kick-ass mm-hmm. portion. Um, yes. So that's like the signature of the, the scientific data analysis team that I'm on that sounds fascinating yeah I have like a question that uh, bumped into my head
0: when you were talking about when you have to compare the different models with the molecules how do you do then do you usually use methods known as method comparison like uh, a model with, comparison yeah model comparison with a uh, Bayesian scores like a uh, widely applicable information criteria. Ah. Can you tell us a little bit more yeah. about how you take your
1: decisions about what are the best kinds of models in that so circumstances? In that particular project, we're still defining what we can offer to end users without overwhelming them, yet at the same time, without like giving them p-value, like things that they become a crutch, right? So we don't actually have a good workflow yet. That's one of the reasons why we're developing this. The reason why we don't have a so-called good workflow is because we need to know, first off, who our end users are going to be, what level of technical detail can they handle, and finally, how we can help guide decisions optimally through the user interface without overwhelming them, yet without also making the UI a crutch. There's a very delicate balance over there. The information criteria methods, we haven't yet considered them. I think that's a good idea. Currently what we do is we look at model performance across three or four different models. I might introduce Bayesian optimization methods for model hyperparameter optimization within the project at a later date. Yeah, we sort of just do that and we look at some heuristics as well. You know, first pass filter out all the bad models. Having a bad model is more catastrophic than... Not having a good model. Trusting a bad model is more catastrophic than not having a good model. And you know, when you operate the scale of like fitting tens of thousands of machine learning models at one shot, that's the scale that I'm operating at. So then, like, I need some automated heuristics to deal with that. Otherwise, you would spend yeah. the whole year. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which sort of defeats the purpose of yeah. like
0: automating the drudgery. I guess that's where also domain knowledge comes in. Do you sometimes have to ask other people in the company when you have to compare several models? All look quite good because they pass the automated test of
1: non-relevance or something like that. And then you've got five or six models and you don't know how to compare them. At the end of the day, a computational chemist has to prioritize a set of molecules that get tested in the lab. And that's how we affect change through computation, by helping chemists and project teams decide in a more rational fashion, hopefully, the right order of molecules to try. That's one particular way so the subject matter expertise that's something that i don't have organic chemistry was my second worst subject in undergrad here i am working on organic chemistry projects clearly i need someone with deeper organic chemistry expertise to help out so I think we've ended up doing is at least for the first version that we're doing right now, we're just sort of targeting computational chemists and saying, you guys have the necessary requisite expertise to make judgments. Here's the suite of automated machine learning things, models that have been built. Here's a declaration of all of the things, all of the modeling decisions that have gone into what you're seeing. The boring stuff has been done and we've tried to help you narrow down of all of the possibilities all of the models that you could have ever built here are the ones that might be the best do you want to move forward with it now the decision is in their hands that's sort of where the subject matter expertise comes in when it comes to the model comparison part that's also in their hands computational chemists are the ones who are trained to know the difference between an xg boost regressor a random forest regressor a bayesian ridge regressor, all the scikit-learn models they're trained to.
0: yeah all of that makes sense yeah. uh, but it's very interesting to hear you talk about the precise workflow Also, maybe, as you said, Bayesian methods are not the default. You're Mm -hmm. trying always to put some Bayesian stuff in your model. So that means that you have maybe to explain more the output of mm-hmm. your models when they are from a Bayesian perspective. I don't know, when you run a scikit-learn model, maybe the chemists know how to interpret them. But when you run a PyMC or a STAN or their libraries model, then uh, they don't really know what to do with the posterior distribution. Yeah. OK, what's that? Uh, yeah. So what do you do in these cases? How do you convey the most important information and yeah, the information that they can use to take the decisions?
1: Yeah. I try to sometimes get into their head and ask. One example is when you have a four parameter dose response curve, is the bottom end more important or is the upper end more important or is the slope more important or is the midpoint concentration important? There have been cases where knowing the upper bound is actually very important. And if I can tell a biologist, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the upper bound for this particular molecule. And I've actually gone in and automatically quantified the uncertainty band in the upper bound parameter for every single molecule and here are the ones that have a probability of being above a certain value based on the posterior distribution, then I can rank it by the probability that they're above there, all based on the posteriors, and then use that as a way to help educate my colleagues basically on the importance of the uncertainty. That's actually a classic way that I've used uncertainty. Basically, rank order things by their probability of being greater than a certain value that from prior knowledge we know is important or some heuristic value, rank order them, and then prioritize based on that probability rather than just mean value being the rank order of the mean value. That's very
0: interesting. Like really using the amazing stuff you get for free once your Bayesian model has run taking your posterior, and then asking all the important questions about your use case. Yeah. I guess also having some neat graphs and visualization. Which tools do you use for visualization? Do you have a like a favorite tool that you use for graphs and so on?
1: Or? For plotting charts and statistical things and distributions, the packages that I've used the most recently have been the HoloViews ecosystem. Uh, based on Bokeh, yeah. if I remember? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I still haven't left my Matplotlib roots, by the way. <laughs> I remember all my contributions to Matplotlib 1.5. That was my first open source contribution. What? What has been helpful, though, by switching to the HoloViews ecosystem has been the interactivity that we get for free, and then the fact that I can embed them inside a panel application that I can develop live and prototype live inside a notebook and then just very quickly same thing serve the notebook. That has made the switch to the HoloViews PyViz ecosystem projects, that has made the switch pretty compelling. I whip out Matplotlib for the really fast things. That API is at my fingertips now but I do make a conscious, deliberate effort to do more web-like things with the bokeh, like PyVez ecosystem. Yeah. Actually, how do you share that? Do you share the whole notebooks? No. One thing I've learned is it really depends on who I'm sharing with. So I have to make sure the person I'm sharing things with is comfortable with the level of output that I'm giving them. So I would not share a Jupyter notebook with a bench colleague who doesn't know what Ubuntu is. That is not the right thing to share. They want point and click. So in that particular case, if I'm serving up something to a colleague who doesn't really know much about computation, I have to go to the web and I have to serve up somewhat nicely, decently organized user interface. The only people I will serve handover notebooks are other computation researchers who want to either know the general method of what I've worked on or are interested in like explicitly reproducing the analysis from like using exact same parameters and then tweaking it on their own to help them with that. I've started championing this thing that we should be doing more often, which is doing proper DevOps in computational analysis. That is to say, refactoring functions, writing doc strings, writing tests, and automatically executing these tests on every single commit and push to our remote repositories. If we don't do this, we're not really guaranteeing the reproducibility of our results. So I make sure the key notebooks of interest are executed on every single commit. They have to pass, they cannot break. If they break, I don't merge. Those are extremely important checks that we build in. And so like this practice of DevOps is extremely, extremely important for computational reproducibility, the stability of our code base for analyses and et cetera. Very important.
0: Yeah. Okay. Do you develop personally, like the dashboards, the interactive dashboards? Uh, When you don't use a Jupyter Notebook to convey the analysis, I guess you write dashboards. Do you do that personally? How is the workflow going? Um,
1: Typically what happens is we'll make a plot and realize, oh, this plot, if I put some interactive elements on it, it becomes useful for conveying, doing the data storytelling in front of our colleagues, and they can also explore it themselves. So make that plot into a refactored function. It lives in a plots.py thing that's in our custom source library. We then take that plots.py and serve it up as part of an integrated dashboard that is in this dashboard.py file. And then from that dashboard.py file, we serve up the composed together dashboard. Panel makes it pretty easy to do that. And it makes it much easier than I've seen with widgets and other dashboarding packages Makes it much easier than other dashboarding packages to apply somewhat good software engineering to the dashboard, which if you think about it, it's kind of important because that's software, right? So yeah, that's sort of the workflow. We put the dashboard actually under continuous integration control as well. That is on every commit, we just execute the code that runs the dashboard. If it fails, we don't let that thing pass the dashboard cannot break and that's sort of the workflow that we use yeah right. yeah that's
0: interesting and then you can send a link to the dashboard to that's right. non-technical people that's right like if it were a, an yeah. internet page that's right they can interact with yeah. the graphs and so on as they want but they don't see the code behind it that's right that's okay right. yeah Very so it really depends on the audience yeah and from what you're saying also mm-hmm. i'm Guessing that you use a lot GitHub and uh, yeah, open source
1: uh, tools internally we use Bitbucket. I still prefer GitHub because mm-hmm. um, I've gotten really used to the tooling that they have there, like issue tracker, project management, etc.
0: Yeah, very interesting to have this view of your process and yeah, actually how software engineering is also very integrated into the modeling part. Actually, do you have in mind like a share of in one given project? How much percentage of the time do you guys, you as a team, spend on the modeling part and then the software engineering slash fees slash
1: dashboarding part? There are days where modeling takes up a large fraction of time. Mm. I would say that getting the software part right has been as important as getting the modeling correct. So at least in the work that I do, we'll try to make sure our models are well justified. And then when we go in and actually write the code for them, we apply another layer of principled engineering on top of that code to make sure everything works. So I would estimate it's a 50-50 split between modeling and engineering however there's also the software development part in addition to the good engineering practices is also what do you call that the data engineering thing hmm? cleaning the data yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's usually even more yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and we actually wrap our data cleaning routines into functions so that we never have to think about them especially if they're standard if they're standard for the project we just wrap it into a function throw it inside you know data.py and make sure we can like call on a central source of truth for a particular data set that we want yeah but that's interesting Interesting, I think, to take
0: home the modeling part. It's long, it's hard work, it's difficult. Yeah. But it's usually not but more only. than 50% of any given project. The whole project is always longer and difficult. Of yeah. Ours, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So maybe here is a good time to ask you because you do a lot of these models and so on, and you've got the cookbook repo I told oh. uh, about earlier. Do you have one or two favorite models or methods that you use for work or for open source? And each time you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, I love that. And each time you have to use this method, you're like, oh yes, that's gonna be a a good day.
1: Yeah, one model that I wrote that I remember having a sense of triumph was building a hierarchical four-parameter dose-response model. Dose-response curve looks like an S. It's got all the four parameters, lower, upper bound, slope, and midpoint concentration. And I was extremely surprised to see that we were just fitting the S-curve on an independent basis between molecules on the same biological system. And that made no sense to me because, you know, like molecules, the bounds of activity that we can observe, there are like biological bounds. Why aren't we baking that into our knowledge in the modeling step? Why would we assume that there are no upper bounds? Why would we assume that there is no upper bound particular concentration? Why would we assume, you know, that the slope can be anything from like here to here? So it's like really flat to really sharp. So when I saw that, I was like, well, okay, you know, hierarchical models give us that ability to constrain our individual group. Our one group is one molecule, right? So our individual group parameters through the regularization effect that it provides. So then I went in and, and then basically wrote the code to do a hierarchical four parameter dose response curve model. At first, I tried to do sampling with MCMC. It would have taken too long for me to be practically useful. So then what I opted to do was just fit it with variational inference instead and start with that, with the knowledge that this is not a completely done model. And what was really cool was like it finished in an overnight run. We had like more than 400,000 molecules, so 400,000 individual data points. We had more than 3,000 groups of molecules and proteins for which we were observing the dose-response relationship. The next morning when I came back to my computer and fired up the terminal and went up to my notebook and like looked at the results. I was like, yes, (laughs) it fit. It took me six hours that one afternoon to like prototype and roughly get the model into a place where I could feel that I could trust it. But once I applied it across all 400,000 data points and the next morning came back, it felt great. Yeah, And that model, it never made it into production, but I'm not sad about that because it's a generally useful model. And so I'm pretty sure it's just in my back pocket. Like all of those Bayesian analysis recipes models, they're in my back pocket. So anytime I need it again, I can just Mm. take it out. And actually, did you release it somewhere
0: uh, in uh, open source or, or, or a version of it?
1: I think that one is technically Novartis property because yeah, so, I did it for yeah. work okay. in the context of work. Okay. So I'm probably not allowed to release the source code yeah. unless I get it approved. So that has to happen first. Okay. So not yet. That not yet. <laughs> you talked a little about it,
0: but do you have in mind like a particular problem you had with this model and how did you solve it? Like you talked about it didn't fit with MCMC. Was it obvious to you very quickly that it wouldn't fit or did it take like a lot of time for you to get there?
1: Knowing that it wouldn't fit in a practical amount of time took me not too long because PyMC uses Takedem for the progress bar. And the progress bar started fluctuating between two days and 14 weeks. So that's a very bad sign. So immediately after I saw that, I just switched over to VI. In my code, I recorded two versions of the model, but in my memory, I actually remember rebuilding the model like eight times in six hours and like doing a whole bunch of model checking, like posterior check, you know, sample from the posterior, make sure it looks like the data that we have on hand, all of that stuff. I did it like at least eight times and still was not satisfied with the final model, but at the end of the day, when your brain power and will power is spent. It was as good as it was going to be for the time being. So I left a note for myself, this model can probably be improved. I'm just going to run with it for now and use it for downstream work that I needed. I can't spend more time than necessary on getting the model perfect. I need to get it into a useful place.
0: And what were you unsatisfied with uh, regarding the model? Was it hard to code it? Did you spend most of your time trying to figure out how to program it or more the scientific part of the model, how to really make sense of the science and put it in the model?
1: Yeah. One of the problems that I observed was unreasonable posteriors. So then I knew there was something wrong with the values. Like if you've taken enough quantitative biology classes, you know that there are some values that are implausible in biology. We have never observed them. Doesn't mean that they're not possible. They're just extremely implausible. And if the model starts putting more than 20% of the probability mass in those unreasonable ranges, it doesn't pass the smell test, smells fishy. So then I knew I had to tweak something about the priors without over constraining, you know, the priors with extremely strong priors, right? Like, yeah. So I had to do something about the model structure, the priors to make sure it's right. So that was the biggest problem that I saw with the first few model versions.
0: Yeah. That's great actually, because it's a perfect example of how you do that usually with your Bayesian model.
1: And it's really exactly what you described. Perfect example. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Hope it's useful to someone listening. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I hope so too. Uh, The smell test. It's it's kind of, important. Exactly. And And actually, it brings me back to a thing that I learned in first year undergrad. I don't know if you remember, but like physics class, you'd be really hung up about significant digits, right? We had a physics professor who's an astrophysicist and he just blurted out one day, oh, order of magnitude is more than accurate enough. I didn't believe it at first. But then later during a recitation class, we did an activity. My recitation partner did not carry significant digits and I did. And we got the same order of magnitude answer at the end anyways. And that's when I realized, oh yeah, scales of stuff, getting the scale right is more important than like just worrying about the nitty gritty significant digits. And Engineers have to worry a lot about significant digits, but if we're doing science, we need to make sure we're in the reasonable scale first. That's the smell test. Yeah, that it
0: makes sense scientifically yeah. mm-hmm. for your problem. Yeah. I talked in quite some details with Colin Carroll about prior mm-hmm. predictive checks and posterior predictive checks, and mm-hmm. it's exactly the way to do these smell tests mm-hmm. reliably, usually. Something I wanted to ask you to, because we're coming short on time now, but... One of your characteristics is that you're a self-learner in many aspects. I wonder if you have some advice for our listeners. What should they focus on if they are starting learning base stats? And what should they focus on if they are more advanced? I'm not advanced yet, so. <laughs> I said more advanced. yeah. All right. Yeah, of course, yeah. Maybe I should reframe the idea behind this question. It's a little what you said earlier, that we are always learning and uh-huh. learning more about what we don't know. And it's actually also the whole idea of this podcast. It's uh-huh. that, uh, you learn that you had to learn even more always. So you're never done. Yeah. And so that's also kind of what you do. So do you have any advice from your experience and what part is really interesting to focus on first when you learn base stats and maybe what you can save for later when you're more advanced?
1: If you have also books or resources, don't hesitate yeah. to I know my learning hack is to make sure that I can teach the ultimate dumb student that is a computer. <laughs> because if the computer will do exactly as I program it to do. And if it does something wrong, then I taught it something wrong. So that means I have to implement stuff on a computer and see that it works. And that's why Alan Downey's book, Think Bayes was very helpful back in the day when I was sort of getting an intuition for basic things like likelihoods what a likelihood function is, what the posterior distribution looks like. Even now today, I still sometimes make the mistake of thinking that like MCMC involves some optimization. It's just, there's an equation in Bayes and we're just following that rule mechanically. There's no gradient descent that we have to worry about, right? So if you get a chance to talk with Colin, you'll know that he has talked with me on the bus sometimes about this stuff. And I've made that intellectual mistake countless times in front of him. Anyways, learning by programming has been my learning hack. So I'll pick stuff in order to make sure that I truly understand it. I'll have to have written a Python implement of it. Whether I use NumPy or pure Python doesn't matter, but I need to implement it without relying on someone else's crutches. And so for me, then programming it has been the most productive way of learning. I think I wouldn't have picked up network science and Python and Bayesian stats and, you know, computational stats in general, as well as deep learning. If I didn't have the incentive to do it, you know, in grad school, I have to write a thesis. So that's a great incentive to learn new stuff. Now out here, I have to deliver value. So that's a still a great incentive to learn new stuff. Causal inference has now been like on my radar of things to learn. It's a fascinating topic. Yeah. That was
0: going to be my next question. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I guess there are still aspects of the Bayesian modeling workflow you're not very good at yet. Yeah. And so how are you trying to improve and what subjects are you trying to improve right now?
1: Learning about causality has been a fascinating journey. And like with other learning topics, I put up a repo called causality on my GitHub. And that's just documenting my learning journey of like learning everything about like you know, structured equations, graphical representations of causal models, how to do de-separation and the likes, like all of that. I've recorded it on GitHub. All of my mistakes are in the commit history as well. There's another one that has been on my head, which is Bayesian deep learning. I know how to implement Bayesian deep learning models. I think some of the fascinating topics that I really want to explore are like how we, one, write Bayesian graph neural networks, in an efficient fashion, and then therefore also use those neural network models and give an end user uncertainty and teach people how to use the uncertainty from the neural network models. That's been one area of fascination. And ma- more more generally, it's just sort of like, now that I know how causal models are how the arrows work and how we translate them to equations, now I'm just sort of like, well, oh, cool. Given a presumed causal model, we don't have to necessarily write linear equations, which is what economists usually default to. That's where structured equation models come up from. We don't have to write these models. You can write nonlinear models between stuff that the arrows are coming out from and the stuff that the arrows are pointing into. So that means we can write a deep learning model. And if we can write a deep learning model, then we can write a Bayesian deep learning model. Just like if we write a linear equation, we can write a Bayesian linear equation. So same ideas. And that's been like fascinating. So now I want to see how we can like put together all these like little pieces of like topics together in like this. I wouldn't call it grand synthesis. It's sort of just like use all pieces as in productive ways. That's the pragmatist in me going How do we use ideas from causal inference, meld it together with Bayesian models, meld it together with structured equations and neural net models, and just put these things together? That's been on my head.
0: That's a lot on your head. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, what you said, the different components you just talked about, would you say it's what makes a model a deep learning model? What's in your mind is the main characteristic of a deep learning model?
1: In my head, at least the anchoring example for me has been chained logistic regressions. That's all that the structure of a deep learning model can really be caricatured as, right? Yeah, Uh, I do a, I take a matrix of data, input data. I've got like 400 features or something. I do a logistic transform on it. Or nowadays, more modern would be you do a ReLU transform on it down to like 50 columns of data. And then you do another ReLU transform down to 10 columns of data. Then you do some other transform down to one column of data. That's all it is. There should be nothing mystical about a deep learning model, however... There's a lot of hype. People equate deep learning with AI. And so internally at Novartis, we hear a lot of execs going AI this, AI that, AI this, AI that. And all of us practitioners at the front lines are going like, Mm. yeah, AI, like all we've written is just, you know, matrix transforms on an optimizable model and that's it. And so this year at SciPy, tried to convey that a little bit at a tutorial, like, Hey, here are the ingredients of a deep learning model They're nothing fancy. There are three things. There's a forward model that specifies how you take your input data, transform to the output data, parameters for the model as well. You have a loss function, it's got to be differentiable, and then you optimize the loss function with respect to the parameters. And that's all, nothing fancy. There should be no mysticism around deep learning. And that's sort of, yeah, how I think about it. Yeah, that's very interesting, and
0: actually, there is also this notion of layers, different layers in you know, yeah. the deep learning model. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. that reminds me of hierarchical models.
1: Uh, yeah, I guess I can see where you're coming from. Though, if you read Thomas Wicky's blog, he did a hierarchical deep learning model once. That was fascinating. I really loved reading that blog post. Yeah, that's yeah. very meta.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Eric, uh, we're almost up. So I'm going to ask you the last two questions okay. I, I ask to every guest. So the first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Oh, my. That's usually the first answer of the guest. Oh, my. Yeah. hope <laughs> <laughs> popular answer answering this one.
1: I can't tell actually, truth be told, because I don't operate under unlimited time and resource constraints. Yeah, I know, I know. No, so my mindset like... is usually like, you know, Matt Damon's character in The Martian. You <laughs> just solve the next problem and the next problem and suddenly you get to go home. No, it's no problem. I mean, uh... maybe I can talk about the next problem I'm really interested in, but don't have the bandwidth to do right now. I want to see how Bayesian graph neural nets perform against standard models. That's a very pragmatic problem that I'd really like to see compared. Yeah, that probably would be my answer to this question. Perfect, thank you
0: for thinking about it on the spot. And the second question is, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be?
1: Hmm, hmm.
0: (laughs) That's hard too, right?
1: Probably the current director of the NIH, Francis Collins. Hmm? But I don't have strong posteriors on that one. <laughs> there are a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the hard
1: part of this question, but that's... You know, there's a prioritization. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's
0: the hard part. You have to have a decision boundary on the, yeah. on the answer. Well, um, anyways, thank you very much all right. Nick, for taking the time. It was really great talking with you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Alex. It's very nice facilities here in, in Boston. Yeah, Uh, you do so many things that we could have done a a three hour long episode. Learning, trying to learn, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. (laughs) But uh, I hope what we talked about will help users apply new modeling techniques, or at least help them on their path to Bayesian statistics. Yeah. Well, for those who want to dig deeper, I put a link to your website and and other resources in the show notes. So I encourage everyone to check them out. And so thank you again, Eric, for taking the time and being in Distro. Thanks, Alex. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman. MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore endora. like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You are truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions
1: that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation. And